Good morning. It is good to be here uh, this morning with you. July is a birthday month in my family. Uh, we have three of them, three out of four of us, so I have birthdays in July. And I don't know whether you've ever had or seen this happen before, uh, but it was not uncommon in my growing up years that you could be at a kid's birthday party. Uh, they could have the little pointy hat on. Uh, they could be surrounded by friends and food, and the presents are all waiting to be opened, and yet the birthday boy or girl is completely in tears. And, uh, and it's really reflective of, uh, of that old, I think, 50s song, It's My Party, I Can Cry If I Want To. Uh, and uh, of course, they're crying because somebody else, at, at least in my case, got the slice of cake with the, the big, you know, uh, icing football that was on it, you know, and they wanted the slice of cake with the uh, icing football on it or the flour or whatever. It really doesn't matter what it is. What's fascinating is that you're sitting there in this very discordant scene, right? On the one hand, you have festivity and, and laughter and joy and fun. And on the other hand, the person for whose benefit it really is, is in tears and having a miserable time, right? I think we can relate to that. It's funny when it happens to a seven-year-old. It's not as funny when it's happening to us amidst the blessings of the Lord. And I thought of that as I was looking at this text because the text that we're looking at uh, begins with this glorious announcement of God's salvation. The salvation is so great that in verse 13, all of the created order is invited to join in the praise of God for his marvelous salvation. That is a crescendo. That is a moment when every instrument is playing a high note as loud as they can. <laughs> right? I mean, that is one of those moments. That's why I don't sing in the choir. Just side note. And then what's the next verse? But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Oh, the kid is crying at the most glorious party of all. And I want us to look at this because I think this is more commonly our experience than we would like to admit when we're all dressed up and looking nice on a Sunday morning. Now, so let's look at this text together. We're going to look at it in three stages. First of all, we're going to look at the day of salvation. What is that? How is it described here? Uh, secondly, I want us to look at the darkness of alienation. And lastly, I want us to look at the picture of compassion. Uh, which is just beautiful in this text. So first of all, let's consider the day of salvation. Uh, we really are picking up in the middle of God explaining, rescue, he has chosen a servant through whom he will bring rescue and salvation to the people of God. And so when we pick it up in verse 8, we're kind of mid-flow as God announces that through this servant, who we have talked about before, God will bring salvation to his people. Why do those people need salvation? Well, because it has been going horribly for them. When Isaiah wrote this book, uh, the nation of Israel had already been divided many years earlier into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Israel has already been taken away by the Assyrians. Their kingdom has been utterly destroyed. The Assyrians even came to the gates of Jerusalem and threatened to destroy the people of God utterly. And so it's going pretty bad. 
All the fortified cities in Judah have already been destroyed. The walls have been torn down. And Isaiah comes along and says, well, I've got good news and bad news. Good news, the Assyrians aren't going to take Jerusalem. And everybody goes, yay! Bad news, the Babylonians are going to come and destroy everything. Ooh, right? That's not good news. And so Isaiah talks about the reality that because of their rejection of God, because of their refusal to acknowledge God as God and to worship him alone, that judgment is coming just like God promised through Moses uh, a thousand years earlier that this was going to come to bear and it was going to come at the hands of the Babylonians and the people of God were going to be sent away into exile and there they were going to remain for many years. But God will raise up a servant and he will bring salvation. Can you imagine in a, in a world of darkness, the beauty of that light as it shines through the clouds and listen to the way he describes the day of salvation. Uh, in verse nine, he says that he's going to provide for them. Uh, he says, uh, prisoners should come out. Those in darkness appear, they shall feed along the ways. The bare height shall be their pasture. We kind of understand this this summer, don't we? Uh, normally, for those of you who might be visiting in town, I don't know, from California or somewhere like that, uh, normally, Colorado is just not this green. I know, my friends who've come into town are like, right? Uh, but the bare heights have become green and the pollens have caused all of us to have summer sinus issues. But it's beautiful, it's great, we love it, thank the Lord, right? We could understand this, this idea that God, even where normally there is no provision of food, he's going to give them food. Secondly, verse 10, he's going to protect them. It says they're not going to suffer hunger or thirst. They're going to be protected even from the scorching sun and wind. That's a way of saying is, look, when I bring salvation to you, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. Uh, thirdly, and I think this is uh, very interesting, he says, I'm going to make it simple and straightforward for you. The day of salvation is not going to be complicated. It's going to be very straightforward. We really see that uh, in verse 11. If you look there, he says, I will make all the mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. This is graphic imagery like we've already seen in Isaiah, that the mountains are going to be made passable that the low places are going to be raised up so that there will be an interstate, so that the day of salvation will be experienced, not in a complicated way, but in a simple and that piece of fruit off a low branch, as easy to enjoy as reaching out and grabbing a piece of fruit off a low branch on a tree. He says, this is what the day of salvation is going to be like. But I love it, in verse 12, we see that the day of salvation is going to have a few surprises. It is going to be an expansive day of salvation. It's not just going to be a day of salvation for those who have been carried off into exile, into Babylon. It's going to be a day of salvation for all kinds of people. Notice uh, in verse 12, it says, Behold, these will come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene, we don't know where Syene is, uh, fill in wherever you like. Uh, in 100 years ago, people thought that was China. But what it's saying is that people from all over are going to be enjoyers of the fruit of salvation, not just people in Babylon. This is going to be an expansive process. 
And that, that's very encouraging because the people listening to this text are seeing their numbers dwindle. They're actually seeing the nation of Israel, the people of God. Oh, it will be an influx of people from all over the world. Earlier, a verse before the text uh, that we started with, it says, the kings will come to you. It's a way of saying that nations will benefit from the salvation that God will bring. I love it how he says it all the way down in verse 21. It's going to be so amazing that people are going to be befuddled by all the people that benefit from the day of salvation. Listen, in verse 21, it says, Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. Who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? See, when Isaiah is writing this, the self-perception of the people of God is we are barren. In other words, like a woman who has no ability to have children. We're desolate. We don't even have the health or strength to think about having children. And yet that person is going to say, but look around me. The city is full. The people are, are so plenteous. There's no room for them. Of course, that's our experience here, right? For those of you who are, uh, have been around Colorado Springs most or all of your life, you can say, wow, where did all these people come from, right? You know, I live up uh, on the north side of Powers, and, and uh, one of my favorite things to do is swing down InterQuest for a variety of taco and burger options uh, that are there, uh, all from Texas and California. I know that may offend the Colorado faithful, but they're pretty busy. Uh, anyway... And all along my route, from where I live up to the very inexpensive California hamburger joint, who I've probably advertised for enough already, there is nothing but apartment complexes being built all along both of those roads. And, and I sit there and I try to do the math in my, my mind. How many people are going to move in Upper Powers and InterQuest? Where did all these people come from? For goodness sakes, we live in a desert. And yet thousands of people are moving in. This is the kind of impression that the Lord says will happen on the day of salvation. The people of God are going to be shocked, not only by the, or, the uh, sort of origin of the people who benefit from salvation, but their numbers. And I love it. It's a beautiful picture. In other words, God is saying the day of salvation is not just going to satisfy your immediate needs, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to be more than you can think or imagine to borrow New Testament language. Do we ever think about it that way? Do we think about God's work of salvation as being more than just enough for us, but being enough for us and every single person who hears the good news about Jesus? The Apostle Paul did. He actually quotes uh, the first couple verses uh, of our, or the second verse of our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in that text, he is talking about the amazing nature of the fulfillment of the day of salvation. You see, when the people of Israel came back from Babylon, uh, to be honest, not all of them came back. Some of them thought, well, Babylon's pretty nice. I built a nice house, I've got a great garden, I've got a decent job. I don't know why they didn't come back, but they didn't come back. And so this prophecy wasn't fulfilled exactly like you would have expected. It didn't look like it was far more expansive than the number of people who existed before they left into captivity. 
But the Apostle Paul understood that that day of salvation was pointing past the return from Babylon to the rise of the true servant through whom God would bring salvation, even Jesus Christ. And so if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about that great and glorious servant. Let's, uh, it's always hard to know where to start when you plop in the middle of a Pauline epistle. I'm going to start, oh gosh, I keep backing up. We could start at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, let's not. Let's start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What, he, what he's saying so far is, look, this great servant, Jesus Christ, is used by God to announce not just the people in Israel, but to all of the world that they can be right with God. They don't have to be afraid of God. They don't have to fear God. They don't have to hide from God. They can actually be in a strong and healthy relationship with God. They can be reconciled to God. He goes on. He says, uh, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteous. How did this great servant bring us salvation, not just for the people of Israel, but for anyone in the world who would hear this good news and respond? He did it by becoming sin. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he did sin, it meant that he took the place of those who have sinned, which is who? Well, all of us for sure, right? And all of humanity that descends from our first parents. Jesus in grace and in a deter determination to bring the day of salvation and reconciliation with God, it was as though he became sin as he took our place on the cross. And God judged that sin through his suffering and death. But when he rose from the dead on the third day, it showed that he was completely victorious over sin and over death. But let's keep reading. The beginning of chapter 6. Working together with him, that's working together with Jesus. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't let this pass you by. Don't treat this like it's a small thing. Don't just, you know... Ignore it and say you'll get to it later. What does he say? And here is where he quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 8. He says, in a favorable time, I've listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't you love it? Paul is saying, what was Isaiah talking about? He says he's talking about right now. He's talking about right now. God has made all of the provision. He's given all of the protection. He has given all of the straightforward access, and it is available to all kinds of people. Don't you love that? I'm sorry, but where I grew up, you know, you run across a text that has that much gospel and says, today is the day of salvation. It's a time for an Here's the invitation. Do not treat lightly 
the salvation that God has brought. You say, well, Paul was writing 2,000 years ago when he said today ate salvation. He didn't mean, you know, Monday in uh, 48 A.D. that that happened to be. I don't know when he wrote it, but it's as good a guess as anyone you're going to give me, right? That that was the singular day. What he meant is this is the day. This is the age in which we have access to the salvation that God has brought. Do not squander the opportunity. Do not let it pass you by. Today, for you, if you have been thinking, when is a good time for me to consider trusting Jesus Christ with my life? Today, today is the day of salvation. If you have been struggling and wondering, even though you embraced Christ and believed in him years and years ago, and you wonder, does it still matter? Does it matter right now? Yes, because today is the day of salvation. God is still at work in you and always will be until that salvation comes to its culmination. And that is good news. But that's only the first point of this sermon, so we have to move on. Because oftentimes, we hear all this good news, like I just shared with you from Isaiah and from 2 Corinthians, and we kind of respond this way. Okay, yeah, sure, God saved us, right? Or perhaps, I know you're all like, I would never admittedly do that, right? You know, or we respond like the child at his own or her own birthday party, and we say, that may be true for all of you, but it's not true for me. I am forgotten. I am abandoned by God. Have you ever experienced that? Do you know somebody who has experienced that? Do you know someone who's going through that right now? In a room this big, you all either are going through it, have gone through it, or know someone going through it. That experience of even though we can articulate all of these glorious things that God has done in his work of salvation, we feel like we are alienated from that salvation. We feel like that applies to all of the sweet, smiley, happy, well-dressed people, not to us. We think that that applies to all the people who were graced with the money or the job or the looks, but it's not true for us. And we can be just like Zion here in this text who says, it's not true for me. Verse 14 again, but Zion, which uh, Zion refers to the area, the geographical location, a high hill in Jerusalem, but it's used simply as a substitute for the word, uh, the people of God or Israel or Jerusalem. They say, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. That is the darkness of alienation. Now, let's be fair to the people who would utter such a thing. And and here in this prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah is through the Spirit of God, he is tapping into a reality of a lot of people who are part of the people of God at that moment. This is how they're feeling. This is their experience in terms of their relationship with God. They feel forsaken. They feel forgotten. You know, we need to acknowledge that. We're human beings. We do not have perfect perception. I know some of you think you do. Just wait a day or two and you won't, right? We don't always perceive accurately what I can tell you that many of our 
least fun conversations in my 33 years of marriage is when my wife, even though she has been kind and gracious and fed me and made sure my clothes were clean and you know, didn't punch me when I said or did something stupid, and which she never has, just side note, uh, you know, and uh, just, I need to be clear, because, you know, sometimes I talk about my marriage, and people are like, oh, Karen, she's terrible. She's awesome. I mean, if you've, know, if you've got to know me at all, the fact that she has stuck with me for 33 years is pure grace. But I can tell you one of the most awkward times that we have is when I have a problem of perception, and I don't feel like Karen loves me. I'm just having a hard time believing it. It's not because of anything she's done or said. It's just because of the darkness or the sadness or the guilt in my own heart. Maybe because I forgot yet again to give her a card on her anniversary birthday or one of those other days that comes so many times, it seems a year, right? I feel bad about something. I, I might just feel bad. And so no matter how much Karen does to express her love for me, I am blind and deaf to it. And so I'll say to her, I just don't know why you don't love me or something dumb like that. I've said that so many times, I can't even count. I don't, I don't even know why you don't love me, which is like the biggest insult to somebody who actually loves you. And she looks at me and she says, that hurts my feelings. And, and a little tear wells up in her eyes. She goes, how could you say I don't love you? And she could start recounting all the things she did for me in that one and single day, and it would be like a thousand things, right? But no matter what she says, she can't make me feel different than I feel. Did you know that? You can't make someone feel different than they feel. The Holy Spirit can, but you can't, right? And so this is the experience. God has announced all of this salvation. And the people say, but I'm forgotten, I'm forsaken. We need to acknowledge that because of our fallenness, our perception is often skewed and we actually have very similar thoughts and feelings ourselves, okay? I'm acknowledging it because I think sometimes just the guilt of feeling that way drives us away from God rather than helping us recognize that's exactly the time we need to dwell in God's presence. Feeling forgotten and forsaken is an invitation to sit and know God better. One writer said, you know, instead of saying that we're forgotten and forsaken, uh, you know, forgotten by God, perhaps the people of God should have uh, applied their own memory to the question of what all has God done for us in our lives in the past. In other words, instead of thinking about God's memory, we should apply our own. And that's what we do when we stay in the presence of God. But it happens. And it can be circumstantially driven. I mean, let's be honest. We can sit here and judge those uh, those uh, Israelites way back from 700 AD and say, how dare they say that God had forgotten and forsaken them? But they were living in a rubble. Their children had died. Their parents had died in war. Their cities were destroyed. They were told they were about to be taken away into captivity. You know what? I think circumstantially they had reason to feel bad. And sometimes you do too. Or perhaps you lose that person who is so precious to you. Or perhaps you have an economic reversal in your circumstances. It's just hard to, to be smiley and bouncy after these things happen to you. And sometimes we're tempted to say, has the Lord forgotten me? 
or perhaps emotionally, we're just in one of those places. I don't know about you, but whenever I have one of those times where I begin to question uh, the application of the day of salvation to me, sometimes what I need most is to go to sleep. Just go to bed. Because my emotional condition is completely affected by my physical abilities at that moment in time. I have not gotten enough sleep. I have not paid attention to my health. And sometimes that affects my emotions and I feel forgotten and forsaken. And really I'm just tired. Has that ever happened to you? Let me tell you when else it happens to you. And this is just public health advice for those of you here in Colorado Springs who live on coffee. You know, here's what happens to me. I have this weird thing that whenever I brew coffee for myself, like if I'm brewing coffee, I don't just brew four to eight ounces of coffee. I brew 16 ounces of coffee. And then I, Pastor Chris's, you know, system goes. This is the stuff you need to know about me, right? I drink 16 ounces of coffee and I'm like a rocket. Woo! Right? You know, I mean, I am getting stuff done. It's all wrong, but I'm getting it done, right? Three hours later, I, everybody hates me. I, I feel terrible. I think worms seem like a good lunch for me, right? Take care of, sometimes it's, it, it's an emotional reaction to other things. So having said, having hope gotten us all in the boat, that we know what this feels like, let's, let's look at the picture of compassion that God gives because it is gracious and precious. In response to this feeling, God gives an answer. And what is his answer? It's it's actually quite surprising. What does he say? Can a woman forget her nursing child? Even she should have, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? I, I want you just to savor what God does here. God compares himself with a nursing mother. Don't you love that? God is very secure in who he is. And he wants to use this beautiful simile to help us understand something about his relationship with us. And so he compares it to a nursing mother. Why does he compare his determination to remember you, even when you feel differently, to a nursing mother? Well, he mentions two things that are incredibly helpful. The first thing he says, he calls her a nursing child. Can can she forget the nursing child? You know, the nursing child. What a picture of closeness and intimacy. God says, as far as I'm concerned, I hold you close to my heart. Now, thanks to social media and Instagram, almost any time you see that a child has been born, you're going to get that picture of the child, that brand new a little bit wrinkly, a little bit misshapen head because of the experience of childbirth, laying on the chest of the mother in the hospital. Now, as a dude, I'm very uncomfortable with that picture. I gotta be honest, because it feels like it's just a little too intimate for me to look at on social media. I don't actually have social media, but my wife shows me stuff from her social media, right? But you know what, it is sweet and precious, isn't it? Because what it is, is this child is both physically and metaphorically incredibly close to her heart. God says, that is the way I think of my people. Do you feel like he thinks of you that way? Secondly, 
It's, I love it. She says, she, shall she have no compassion of the son of her womb? I love that. We are, praise God, blessed with many women walking around here in some stage of uh, a pregnancy. And it's a, it's a glorious thing. Now, look, don't go guessing which ones they are. Because that can get you into hot water. I know, it's happened to me once, twice, three times, four times. You know, it's, when do you do? Oh, gosh, that is the worst question to ask somebody who is not expecting. Uh, but uh, anyway, anyhow, uh, one thing that's true about carrying a child for uh, nine months is the bond that is there because you literally are sharing life together. Every movement, every kind of fitness. He says, look, but not all moms are good moms. Don't you love it? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Moms sometimes lose their memories. Moms sometimes are just self-obsessed. Moms sometimes don't live long enough to express love to their children. God says, moms, human moms aren't perfect. He says, but I am. That determination to keep you close and to feel connected to you, that is the way I feel about you, my people. Meditate on that the next time you're crying at your own birthday party. Next time you feel forgotten and forsaken. Remember that God says that the way a young mom feels when she's close to her own nursing child, that's the way he feels about you. But then he uses a second metaphor. I love it. He goes on and he describes in verse 16, he actually calls people's attention. That word behold means look, look. And what does he want us to look at? He's got a palm tattoo. Now, it's a little even more intense than a palm tattoo, but I, want, I know you're like, God has a tattoo? It says it. I'm just reading what it says. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Uh, I love that. He's got an engraved tattoo uh, on his hand. And, you know, that's how they do tattoos. I know that as a young person, I just thought they use a very intense kind of magic marker. Uh, but, but from what I understand, that's not how it works. Uh, that there, there's actually a little thing that is very rapidly using a needle to, to, to basically poke your skin. I don't even know what the, the RPM on that is. But let's say hundreds of times, you know, per minute. Pop, 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 pop. And it's actually driving that ink underneath your skin. And that, that just seems painful to me. So that's why, that's one of the many reasons I currently have no tattoos. For those of you who, who do, you are very brave. And I hope you thought really hard about what you put on there, right? You know, I hope you did it in the right frame of mind, right? You know, so that, you know, you're, you're happy with it. But God says that on my hand are the walls. What does that mean? You know, well, I'm from South Carolina, and uh, South Carolina loves its state shape. Now, Colorado's state shape is called a square, but it's, uh, in, you know, and we love squares, right? You know, anyway, but the state of South Carolina kind of has, because of the rivers that mark its borders, it has kind of a fun shape. It almost looks like a bird looking out on the Atlantic Ocean which is appropriate since the Atlantic Ocean begins in South Carolina, down in Charleston. And uh, so, in case you ever wondered, and we love the state shape. And so for a South Carolinian, they might have a, a wood 
you know, sort of uh, artwork in their house with the outline of the state of South Carolina, and, and it says home right in the middle of it. And, uh, or they might have the outline of South Carolina on the window in the back of their car. I mean, we're weird about our state shape in South Carolina. Why? Because it reminds us of where we feel like we belong, where our family is, where we came from, where we grew up. We have an emotional connection to it, and so we love the shape. God says, I've got the shape of Jerusalem on my hand because I'm always thinking about you. I love that. What does that tell us? God is saying, look, I want you to know, understand that I have you before my eyes all the time. He says, look, I want you to see it. And what is true about an engraved image on his hand? Well, at least three things. First of all, that's permanent. Yeah, I know, you're all saying, well, we have, you know, tattoo removal. Well, again, he's using the word engraved. You do that with a chisel and a hammer. Yeah, it ain't coming off. Uh, at a plastic surgeon's office. It's in there. It's deep. He says it's engraved. It's permanent. It's not going to change. God is not going to change his affection for his people. Secondly, it's prominent. Now, uh, just in case, I know I've given tattoo advice here before, and, and uh, it's, always, uh, it's always bitten me, uh, but let me just be clear. This is just an illustration. I'm not endorsing the getting or removing of tattoos. This is just an illustration because the text has brought it up. I have to be clear about this stuff with you people. When people get a tattoo, they have to think about where they're going to place it, right? For most of you who are afraid to admit you have one, you have it some thigh or somewhere that you can cover up all the time because you don't want to, your church friends to know you have that particular tattoo. I know how that rolls. There are more prominent places. I'm not a big fan of the neck tattoo, even though a lot of my favorite footballers seem to like that. Uh, but I'm telling you, you can't hide one on the palm of your hand. You just can't. I mean, you can wear gloves all the time, but that would be weird, right? On the palm of your hand, every time you say hello to someone, every time you shake hands, uh, every time you wave at someone, there it is. It's prominent. God says, I'm not hiding my affection for you. It's front and center. It's permanent. It is prominent. And thirdly, it is painful. It is painful. Again, we're not talking, even though I use the word tattoo, we're really talking about an engraving. And here God is saying that I am committed to you no matter the pain that it causes me. And we need to think about the context of Isaiah 49 here. The reason why destruction is coming upon the people of Israel is because they have caused pain to God in their rebellion and their refusal to listen and their chasing after other gods. And as God describes himself with uh, human feelings, it has pained the heart of God. But he says, I am willing to endure pain for you. I'm willing to engrave you on the palms of my hands. That's how much I love you. And of course, we're sitting here not in the time of Isaiah chapter 49, but we're sitting here on the other side of the story of Jesus. God himself who became a man. And lived a perfect life, not one of rebellion and rejection, but one of perfection. And at the end of his life, he went to a cross, and there he received an engraving upon his hands with a spike driven in by a Roman soldier, 
So much so that after his resurrection, he still bore the mark of his love for his people. The reminder of the permanent, prominent, and painful love with which he loves us. Thomas wasn't there that first day that Jesus appears to his disciples and he said, unless I see the marks on his hands and put my hand in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus comes again and he says, Thomas, put your fingers here in this mark of love. Put your hand in my... In other words, he connected to the prominent, permanent, painful reality of God's love for him. When we struggle, and we're going to struggle, we're going to struggle. And we wonder, has God forgotten us? Has he forsaken us because of our circumstances, because we're on the downstroke of that caffeine high, uh, because we haven't slept? Whatever the reason, look at the marks on his hands. And remember that it is there not just to remind you, but as a testimony of him that he could never forget you or forsake you. He holds you close like the mother does her child. And may that comfort you. And may that draw you deeper in, even in that emotional alienation. Don't lean away, lean in. And in him find solace for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word, that you show us your determined love for us. Lord, we don't deserve it. We are as frail and fickle as they come. And yet, in love, you have shown us how much you love your own. Oh, Lord, we will doubt. Help us to rebound from our doubt to rebound from our alienation. Help us to take just one centimeter of a lean back toward your everlasting and beautiful love. Lord, that we might know and experience the reality of your intimate embrace even when we feel the opposite. Thank you for Jesus. For in him we see the greatest testament to your permanent, prominent, and painful love. Keep our eyes on him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.